Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, welcome back to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, everybody, Colin. What's up, everybody, Colin? And today's episode, we have John Adler, who is going to tell us all about the roll-up and the differentiation between them and whatever else he feels like talking about. John, welcome to the show. Why don't you start off by doing the normal thing and telling us kind of where you're from, how you got to the space, and what you do. Hey, Corey. Hey, Colin. It's uh, great to be here. I guess I'll start off with a brief introduction of myself. So I'm John Adler. I'm currently uh, with Consensus doing Ethereum scalability research. Uh, my background, I have a master's in electrical and computer engineering from the University of Toronto. It was mostly focused on formal verification and debugging of hardware circuits. Fairly different than you know, the crypto space, although the formal verification does come in handy uh, when because there's a l- large overlap between you know, hardware and software. So it comes in handy uh, when I'm dealing with projects that claim to do formal verification of smart, smart contracts. Uh, I also had a pretty deep uh, interest that unfortunately I never did any formal uh, research on. It wasn't part of, you know, my, my, uh, my graduate studies. Uh, in compilers and interpreters. And it happened that this had a very large, or I saw that there was a large overlap between compilers and interpreters and what people do there, how they optimize these things, and you know the replicated state machines that are blockchains. Uh, and things like, you know, how do you design a smart contract language? How is it efficient? You know, what's the performance of, uh, of your blockchain and so on? And there was a huge amount of overlap between these two uh, from what I saw at the time, and I still think that's true. And that's kind of what drove me initially to kind of enter and be interested in the blockchain space, which was maybe about three years ago. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, I was done with my studies. I put my, I was in, I was doing a PhD, and then I put that on hold to uh, join Consensus to do layer two scalability research. And it started off with Plasma. Uh, fairly early on, I kind of did an overview and saw that a lot of the Plasma variants uh, had a number of issues with them. The primary issue in a, in a I mean, there's a bunch of issues, but the primary one that I saw was that they were all permissioned. And kind of the in thing around that time, around a year and a half ago or so, was people were saying, okay, we can have a system that can't steal your funds, but it's permissioned. And that's the trade-off we make. And I didn't find that trade-off acceptable. I wanted something that was both permissionless and trustless and scalable. And that led eventually to optimistic rollups. So since then, I've been doing layer two scalability research in that context, and more recently, I've also been doing work on phase two of Ethereum two. That's my background. I'd say you've got your uh, work cut out for you uh, from from here. Did yes. you So like, you keep hearing this. That was a big, I guess you know, headliner of the recent DevCon. 
was, you know, the, the next greatest thing for scalability in terms of the Ethereum F2 is like, it's no longer plasma. It's this thing called rollups. And it started off with, you know, Zilla knowledge rollups. And then, okay, well, maybe we're not going to use those. We're going to use optimistic rollups instead because they're better in some way. And I think there's a lot of words that get thrown around here that people are saying cool, but they don't understand the differences, right? How does, first, I guess, let's start off with like, what does the concept of rollup mean, especially in comparison to what plasma, like what my mental model of plasma is? And then we can talk about the variance from there. Uh, that's good. Uh, how about, do you mind if I start instead instead going over some of the more traditional and historical scalability proposals, things like channels and sidechains and plasma uh, yes, and the features? We, we kinda, well, yeah. so our audience does kind of have a background like yours. So for the most part, we do kind of understand, and we do go over this in detail in other shows, but yeah, like, like tell us what built up to rollups, because I'm really, con like, I followed plasma pretty closely, and then I realized it wasn't quite going to work. The way they advertise and then i kind of like checked out it's so like bring me back in okay great yeah so i'll go over some of the challenges i, I mean i since you said your viewers are more technical that's great that means i don't have to go over everything yeah. in you know meticulous detail i can kind of assume they know how it works at the base and then kind of go over some of the challenges and like you said this will lead eventually to why why rollup is doing what it's doing so let's start with the kind of oldest ones which is i don't know if there's oldest ones because you know these all day all date back to bitcoin talk threads so let's start with you know, one that's traditionally used in the Bitcoin space, which is payment channels or state channels. Uh, you know, you have systems like Lightning Network, Raiden, Connect, and so on. There's and you know, a bunch of state channel projects. Uh, and it's you lock coins between two or more parties, and then the state progresses through unanimous consent. So all the parties need to sign a state update. Uh, the simplest case, or the simplest way of visualizing it, is that you just everyone just increments a nonce. So every time the state updates, then this nonce increments. Uh, and that's how you kind of version, you know, different states. Uh, and this is really great. So I'm not so to be clear, I'm not saying channels are terrible. They have great properties that blockchains can't give you. Uh, they have absolutely instant finality. As soon as the state progresses, everyone knows that's the latest state. Uh, and they're basically free between the participants. This is you know absolutely amazing. Blockchains cannot give you these properties. If you need these properties, then you no know, channels are good for you. But they have certain challenges and certain issues. Uh, they're capital inefficient because they require full pre-collateralization. So all the parties need to lock up all the coins before using the channel. Uh, and this is very capital inefficient. And you know, capital costs money. Liquidity costs money. Uh, it requires constant user monitoring, monitoring uh, because you are responsible for your own channel, or you have to pay for a watchtower. Uh, they're also vulnerable to chain congestion, and this is especially the case if the block capacity of the main chain is very small or it's intentionally limited. Uh, right? If the chain is congested, people can start closing channels fraudulently, and then you won't be you know, not all the honest parties will be able to respond to these challenges within the timeout period. And there's an inbound capacity problem, so you can't if you have something like a payment channel network, you can't receive funds unless you've already spent funds. Uh, and then let's see what else. There's a fixed set of users, and the fixed set of users means you can't build things like Uniswap on it. You can't build open protocols. Uh, let's see. Yes, and that's basically it. So these are kind of the challenges around channels. So now we say, okay, the last one we talked about is you know the openness, is that channels are a fixed set of users. I mean, and you know the collateral requirements and all that stuff. So do we have a system that uh, doesn't have these particular issues that we can, in fact, build Uniswap on it, that you know anyone can join and participate at any time, 
And the answer is yes, we have sidechains. Uh, so examples examples of this are liquid, rootstock, and scale. I sometimes call these unqualified sidechains, not because they're bad, uh, but because they have you know no further intrinsic qualities to them. They're just plain sidechains. Did you consider like POA uh, network also a sidechain for Ethereum? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so these sidechains are great compared to channels because they have open participation, so you can build things like Uniswap on them, and they have no pre-collateralization. They're relatively capital efficient. Uh, and you know the the general the general way they work is you have some set of block producers like you have proof of work, proof of stake, some federation, some authority, uh, however you want it to secure the sidechain. But this is a completely different security model than, for instance, channels or you know the main chain, uh, because now you have trust. You have the trust that the uh, who, these block producers that are securing the sidechain won't produce an invalid block or produce an invalid block and withhold the data. And then you know just steal all your funds. So there's a fundamentally different security assumption, uh, and this kind of manifests itself. And this particular point is important because this is the distinction between plasma and just unqualified sidechains. Is that uh, there's a two-way peg. This is kind of where the issue with sidechains is. Is the two-way peg. The forward peg from the main chain to the sidechain is easy, right? You just deposit coins into a contract. They get minted on the sidechain. The reverse peg, so going from the sidechain to the main chain, that's the one that is, that's, this is where all the difficulty lies, right? Because since the security of the sidechain is lower, someone cr can create an invalid block that just gives themselves all the funds on the sidechain, withhold that data, and then provide like an SPV or a light client proof back to the main chain to unlock all the funds in the contract on the main chain and to steal all the user funds. So this is a fundament fundamentally different security model. And this kind of, how can we do this reverse peg without having to trust the sidechain operators or the sidechain block producers is what Plasma attempts to do. So there's no clear definition of Plasma uh, to this day, which is unfortunate. I don't think we ever will, but the general no, way it's used is- like It's kind of like an like ephemeral mindset. We talked with Kelvin about this a couple episodes ago, and it was like, this is the general concept of Plasma, whereas like, yeah. there's no real specific specification to what it means. Yes, uh, I attempted to define it in some ways, but it, you know the plasma guys kind of pushed back and they kind of gave their own vague definitions. Uh, we can talk about that later, but there's no there's no clear definition generally. Or the way Georgios describes it, which I think is a good description, is that it's a side chain that's safe under data unavailability. So your coins can't get stolen, even if the data is withheld, even if the block producers on on the side chain withhold data. Uh, so the way Plasma works is that you have a single central operator, and the reason you can't make Plasma permissionless is because of data withholding. In a permissionless system, the majority could just withhold data from the minority and then essentially just kick them off, because then the minority can't produce new blocks, they don't have the data. So Plasma is permissioned. There's just no way around it. So you have a single operator, and they commit to sidechain block hashes on-chain. Uh, this is nice because now you kind of have the same irreversibility, the same security as the main chain. You no longer have you know a separate consensus protocol. Uh, and deposits, you know, the, the work the same way as sidechain is that you just lock funds into the into the contract and they can mint it on the sidechain. And the reverse peg is kind of where plasma has to do all the work. Uh, all this complex, all the complexity of plasma is around the reverse peg. Uh, so it's maintained by an exit game. So for plasma MVP variants, which were kind of the original ones. Uh, you know, the minimal viable plasma, more viable plasma, those kind of things. Yes. Yeah, All the naming the, conventions the, was quite fun for a little while. Yeah. The exit game is basically just a queue. 
And if a block is withheld by the operator, everyone is supposed to exit their state from the previous block to whatever is withheld. Or you know, if they have an invalid block, they, you, you can submit a fraud proof. But if the operator with, withholds a block, everyone is supposed to exit their state from the previous block, which is assumed to be valid. Uh, now, the issue is there's a very kind of small window of opportunity for them to do this. Uh, they have two weeks or something. And if you think about it, they now have to exit or dump the entire sidechain state, not just a single block, but an entire the entire state, which is basically unbounded in size, on the main chain, which costs a huge amount of gas, uh, within two weeks. So in other words, the kind of safe throughput of all Plasma MVP chains running on a single main chain, not just of one, but of all of them put together, is upper bounded by the free block space of the main chain. So what's the free block space on Ethereum right now, approximately? I don't know off the top of my head. Like approximately zero, right? Well, it's just, is that capacity? Oh, because it's being yeah. used? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so on, on Ethereum, the, the safe throughput of all Plasma MVP chains is basically zero. That's why Plasma MVP is uh, basically dead end. Everyone gave up on it, and there's a number of projects like Omizigo and Matic and so on that are still working on this because I don't think they understand that this is the dead wait, end. Wait, wait, though. Are you saying that every... Mm, we're not at max capacity on every block, though. I've seen blocks that are some blocks that are low and some blocks that are high. Like, I mean, I, I mean, almost at ninety. Well, the main issue there, even if it's even if that's the case, it's it's variable and it it drastically it limits is the, it drastically mm -hmm. limits the size your plasma chain can have, which is not a scaling solution, right? It's yeah, because it's over two weeks, right? So sure, each block can have variance, but over two weeks, you say what's the amount of free space there, and that's you know it's basically zero. Over over it's a long I'd be to see what on average the free mm -hmm. space over two weeks would be. Yeah, I'd say from what I've seen, it's probably like 95%. Yeah, but if you want that as, as, like a, as a general framework for scaling out, that's not going to work because as that popularity increases, that like mm -hmm. the, like the security model of like, what if both chains exit? What's the size of all yeah, these things? So like, like multiple, the free bandwidth for all of the available chains isn't, is, is, is much, much, much smaller as it grows. And so that's not nope. a scalable solution. Yep. That's exactly it. Yes. So Plasma MVP was is a dead end. No one, no one that knows what they're doing uses it anymore. And then everyone moved over to Plasma Cash variants. Uh, so the Plasma Cash variants use a coins data model, and it's based off of or inspired by Greg Maxwell's Coin Witness, uh, which is almost exactly the same thing as Plasma Cash. It just slightly change in, change in how the operator uh, works. Uh, and I kind of likened them to channels. So. Pretend that you have a channel between two parties. You know, two parties lock up their coins, and then one of the possible state updates you can make is you delegate your signing to another party. Right. So Alice and Bob, you know, create a create a multi-sig together. They deposit their coins, and then one of the state updates they make in the state channel is they allow Charlie to sign on behalf of Atlas. Right. So now, really, this channel is between Charlie and Bob. Now, this usually should never be done with a channel. And the reason being is that you can essentially double spend this state update by signing with the same nonce and everything. You can sign a state update, like Alice and Bob can sign a state update that allows, for example, Dave to sign on behalf of Bob. So now Charlie has you know, a, state, a signed state update that says, hey, he can sign on behalf of Alice right, going forward in the future. And Dave has one that says he can sign on behalf of Bob. And they both have the same nonce. So essentially, Alice and Bob have kind of double spent uh, their state update, if you want to call it that. And how do we resolve double spends? Main chain. Like, yeah, the, well, the, well, the, the blockchain. Long, longest like, chain, the blockchain, yeah. 
the blockchain, yes? So you resolve double spends by a blockchain, you order them, right? If you order transactions, then there's no double spending. So what does Plasma Cash do? It orders these assign, uh, assigning or delegating off signing rights to this channel. That's what it does. Because usually it would be unsafe to do so because you can double spend. But if you order them and you have you know this chain that everyone can see, uh, now suddenly you're, you're good to go, right? You have an ordering. You, people can't double spend. You know, assigning of new the yeah. new participant. Yeah, the later the one that would be the double spend is just invalidated because it's already been spent. Yeah, so, so it's kind of like Alice and Bob have you know coin in the plasma cash, and then they sign it over. And now like it's Bob and Charlie kind of. So now Alice doesn't have the coin. Charlie does, right? And this is kind of how you transfer ownership of coins in Plasma Cash using this, you know, blockchain to order uh, assigning of channel owners, which usually you can't do in a normal channel. So it's kind of a combination of channels and a, and a blockchain. And unfortunately, it kind of inherits the both of both worlds, the both of the worst of both worlds, not the best of both worlds. Uh, so in Plasma Cash, you well, the benefits of Plasma Cash over Plasma MVP is there's no more mass exit. Just like channels, you know all the channels that are open on the main chain. You know all the coins that have been deposited. If someone tries to close a channel, right, they have to provide proof that they are the owner. And if they're not the like late current and latest owner, then a later owner can then say, hey, no, I'm actually the current owner, and I'm a later owner than you. Uh, that's kind of the general mechanism. So you avoid mass exits, but you introduce some other challenges. You can't use watchtowers, so users need to be online every whatever two weeks or whatever. Uh, which is you know pretty huge burden on users. Uh, it has a multi-round interactive challenge, and this is vulnerable. Like it's even more vulnerable to chain congestion than you know usual channels. And it's an on-chain interactive challenge. It's an on-chain interactive challenge. Yes. Okay. One of the eggs in plasma cache, which is needed, you can't avoid this. Is someone initially, well, someone tries to exit. Someone can challenge and say, "Hey, you, you aren't the current owner, right?" please provide me proof that you own this coin. And then the real owner is supposed to respond to the challenge and say, hey, I do in fact own these coins. I'm actually doing a valid exit, uh, is, is kind of the gist. So there's an interactive challenge. And this is unavoidable for Plasma Cash. You can't avoid this. And this also means that attackers can kind of uh, exit coins that they don't own. And then the honest users won't kind of be able to challenge all of these things. Uh, within you know the two week period or whatever because this is vulnerable to chain congestion. Uh, and then also it uses a coin data model and it needs to use a coin data model. It can't you say use, coin data model. It, you mean UTXO? Not exactly. It's it's like the channels like I said. It's something okay. it's something similar to channels. How you you have it's like you know in the in like the, the lightning or whatever or in Raiden or something. You open a channel on chain. You know the channel is between two parties and you know what the funds are. The yeah. on chain knows that the channel exists. It has like a unique ID, if you want to call it that, yeah. right? This is kind of the same architecture that Plasma Cache uses. And they just like as a, as a pass along the channel as opposed to making new ones. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, but then you can also deposit if you want to make new ones, right? You can also okay. deposit new coins yeah. and you can close, uh, you can withdraw coins, which is equivalent of closing these channels. Uh, so you need to use this coins data model. You can't use a regular UTXO data model you can't use a UTXO data model, and you can't use an accounts data model. You need to use the coins data model. Uh, and this is unfortunate because the coins data model restricts us to certain, certain things and certain performance. So uh, you can't have Uniswap on, on Plasma Cache, for example. Uh, you need something like an accounts data model if you want to have Uniswap. So you can't do that. Uh, 
and remember on side chains you can do uniswap right so now we've kind of regressed because again plasma cache is like uh, some weird some weird mix hybrid uh, mongrel child of you know channels and side chains and it doesn't have the best of both worlds so now you've regressed in terms of some features so you can't do, you can't build uniswap uh, there's also various concerns like uh, the operator, it's very expensive to kind of mercalize the state in this way every block and pass around proofs is very bandwidth expensive. Uh, and it kind of limits how many transactions that spend the same coins can be done in a single block and so on. And of course, the worst part is that it's permissioned. Now, these sidechains are permissionless potentially, right? If you use proof of work or proof of stake, you can make sidechains that are permissionless. Uh, maybe not trustless, but it's at least permissionless. So Plasma you know, has all this complexity, has all these downsides, uh, and it's permissioned. So it's not exactly the ideal solution. Uh, that's about it for the background. That seems of, to be you know, the overview of the uh, other implementations of level two technology. Yes, that's basically it. Uh, kind of an overview and the challenges. And what we want is something that's scalable trust minimized, so close to trustless, uh, or that has a trust minimized two-way peg, and permissionless. We want all three of these properties. And optimistic rollups is kind of the first practical uh, design that actually gives us this in the history of blockchain. And that's so why it's so exciting. before we get into that, I, I want to ask you something. Um, you keep uh, talking about permissionless, but permissionless is not necessarily something. That, so permissioned is often just an optimization around your Sybil mechanism. There's no, is, what is, what are they doing that is making it so that they have to use a classical permission protocol and they can't use a different Sybil mechanism um, and the, a more open protocol. It's like, what is, what is actually the barrier to being permissionless in let's say plasma cache? Like what is, what is the, what is that? What's the stop oh, that? I don't understand well, because to oh, me, okay. it's like, yeah. So for plasma in particular, like there's no barrier to permissionlessness in sidechains, uh, right? Like you can just right. have any consensus protocol you want in sidechain. For plasma right. in particular, the reason it can't be permissionless while still, uh, you know, being safe under data unavailability is mm -hmm. that the majority of sidechain, let's call them validators or block producers, right? The majority of the sidechain validators can withhold data from the minority. And then the minority can no longer produce blocks because they don't know what the state is. They don't know what the new transactions are. They don't know anything. So they can't produce new blocks and they eventually just get kicked out of the consensus protocol. The and then eventually the majority can keep doing this, keep doing this, keep doing this. And just the system kind of tends towards becoming permissionless or tends towards becoming permissioned even if you started off or seeded as seemingly permissionless. What consensus protocol were they using for, for Plasma Cache? Uh, single operator POA. Mm. Okay. That, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that's why that would be that way. <laughs> if it tends towards they, the they, they could have used other uh, things, like, but that's what they chose yeah, why to do use. They, okay. Why do they choose to do that? I feel like there's better options for that, even even like multi-operator POA. Uh, I mean, I guess you could do like uh, like a BFT protocol. Okay. Raptor Paxos would have worked. Like you could have you could have done this in a lot of different ways, and that would have that would that would have that would have been fine, especially given the small node size of these things. That I mean, yeah, you would require maybe an initial setup, but yeah, you, you can get it going. Um, I, I don't see why that was a. I think that was like a, an optimization for development. Was that actually something they planned in like a long term solution, or was that necessary? Uh, 
I mean, some teams are saying we're going to use proof of stake and solve all our problems because you know they don't understand that this is a problem and that using proof of stake doesn't magically you know make it actually permissionless and actually trust us. Uh, but in general, I guess is because implementation in Plasma just didn't get very far. Uh, you know, clients are only mostly half implemented, and then usually in things like JavaScript uh, with low performance. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. since they didn't yeah. get very far, I mean, they're not going to build. Complex they didn't get to that problem yet, it seems. Uh, all right, so like yeah. let's let's say let's say um, all of that is, is is well done, but no one has any qualms. I'm sure people will have qualms with maybe particular parts of that, but that's not a big deal. Sure well, yes. Um, what is optimistic rollup, and how does it compare to all these things? I'm very curious okay, about this. Like, I'm very curious on how this, how to mentally model optimistic rollup versus these previous ideas of state channels that I already have mental models for. Great. So I'll do exactly that. So again, to kind of set the stage, which is we want a solution, a scaling solution that's scalable, that has a trust-minimized two-way peg, and it's permissionless. By trust-minimized, I mean one that's as trustless as we can get it. For example, if you're using fraud proofs, you always have a synchrony assumption that you can submit a fraud proof that a block is invalid within a certain parameterizable period of time, say two weeks. Uh, so this isn't completely trustless because the miners could decide to censor this fraud proof transaction and then steal funds by colluding with the sidechain uh, block producers. And they could do this, uh, but it's very unrealistic, at least according to certain groups of people, such as the you know Ethereum developers and community, uh, that miners doing this like actually active censorship for two weeks is going to go unnoticed and unresponded to by the community. And the Bitcoiners are in a certain way the same way, even if they won't admit it. Uh, when Binance got hacked and then there were suggestions that uh, CZ could you know, bribe the miners essentially to do a reorg, uh, the Bitcoin community was up in arms about this and they were vehemently uh, against this, despite the fact that economically, well, why not? It, I mean, miners could do this economically. There's nothing stopping them technologically or economically. It would have, in fact, been profitable for them to do this. They didn't do this because of social reasons. Uh, and you know, socially, we will not accept a two-week-long reorg or a two-week-long censorship attack by block producers. Right? We, if they did this in Bitcoin, the the miners would get forked off and all their ASICs would get bricked. We would you know, change the proof-of-work algorithm or something. Yeah, and I, Ethereum, I, I can see some serious uh, burning bridges if that happened. Exactly. Uh, so socially, this won't happen. Bitcoiners kind of don't like talking about this, but this is this is how blockchains work. They it's not governed by math; it's governed by people socially. Uh, and then in the Ethereum space, well, unfortunately, in the Ethereum space, since we're using a GPU-friendly hashing algorithm, we don't really have any recourse. If the miners decide to start censoring transactions, we're kind of screwed. That's one more reason that Ethereum should move to something that's ASIC-friendly. For example, Ketchak or SHA-3 or whatever you want to call it. Or something else that's you know ASIC friendly. That's not my problem. Uh, but regardless, we have you know social so certain social expectations that such a reorg or such a long censorship attack will not happen. And but it's, it would be incorrect to call them completely trustless. So I prefer the term trust minimized. So we want scalable, trust minimized to a peg, and permissionless. We want these three properties. And this is where optimistic rollups comes in. Uh, so kind of the rollup idea in general which I'll give a brief history about, uh, was started by the rollup idea in general, uh, which I'll give a brief history of, was started by Barry Whitehat sometime in, I guess, the summer of last year. Don't quote me on dates. I'm terrible at dates. 
he started a repository called roll underscore up, uh, which describe you know a scheme where you use zero knowledge proofs and then you have data on chain or whatever, and you do the traditional roll up stuff. And this was later improved by Vitalik Buterin uh, in his fairly famous post, you know, the scaling to 500 transactions per second on E3 search. This is, I think, the second most visited post on E3 search. I don't remember what the first one is, but it was kind of not not relevant to anything. It was like some some governance post or something. But you know, this post is you know extremely uh, you know extremely widely viewed and talked about and discussed. Uh, so originally started with Barry Whitehat, Vitalik Buterin improved it, and you know there are various talks about using blockchain as the data availability layer. But the th assumption was always we need to use zk proofs. We need to use this exotic new crypto magic that no one really knows how it works. It has a bunch of weird assumptions. Uh, it requires a trusted setup. It requires you know extremely expensive computers to to generate proofs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and the assumption was always that this was kind of a necessary component of these roll-up type structures. Uh, now, and those and the reason I would venture to guess that historically this was the assumption is that you know this is how people were pitching it is that using zk the, the zk proofs you don't have to do verification on chain because you just you know verify a validity proof and then you don't actually have to verify all of the transactions so you kind of have one person do the proving and then the chain can do the succinct verification and this is where kind of the scalability scalability benefits come from it turns out that this is actually not really true. And that's not at all where the scalability benefits come from. Uh, what really what really comes from is that the way rollups works is that you post. I guess I'll start with zk rollups, which is that zk rollups is you post all all the sidechain transactions on chain. Like every time there's a new sidechain block, you just post the entire set of transactions on chain, uh, and then you kind of merkleize them or you hash them. You pass this to, and then you also submit a proof. Uh, that these transactions are valid state transition from the previous state to the next state. Uh, and the previous state, or the kind of the current latest state is always saved by contract on-chain. Right? And then you verify the proof and you say, okay, do these transactions, if applied to the current latest state, do they in fact give this next state? And if the answer is yes and everything verifies, then you save that next state as you know the current latest state on-chain. And essentially, the only thing you need to keep on chain in storage in you know the on chain state is a Merkle root, a state root, off the side chain state. And this is actually where the scalability comes from, is that you just post the transactions on chain. You don't actually have to verify them. The verifying that they are valid through a validity proof is one way of validating the transactions, but there are in fact other ways, which is that you can use. Uh, fraud proofs and interactive verification games instead, plus a synchrony assumption, and that also has the same effect of validating validating the transactions. So you don't actually need the zero knowledge proof. Uh, this this does not actually confer scalability benefits. The scalability scalability benefits are because transactions are just posted on chain and they're not validated on chain. Because, for example, in Bitcoin, uh, let's consider Bitcoin uh, the Two most expensive things in Bitcoin is signature verification, by by far, and eventually it's going to be state. Right? The UTXO set is, as time goes on, is going to keep growing and growing and growing, just like the state in Ethereum is going to keep growing and growing and growing. Uh, and with no you know state rent or whatever to mitigate this, every time you add something to the state, it makes all other state operations that much more expensive, and it's just going to keep getting more and more expensive. And unlike history, like the Bitcoin history is about 250 gigabytes. 
The Ethereum sister is also about 250 gigabytes, but full nodes don't actually need to keep the sister around. Uh, it's a kind of common misconception among several people in the Bitcoin space that say, you know, an Ethereum full node is two terabytes, right? Or that an Ethereum node that's 250 gigabytes is actually less secure than a Bitcoin full node that's also 250 gigabytes We've and gone so through on. that uh, quite Good. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Then in that case, I don't have to reiterate, reiterate too much, right? But so yeah. uh, to cut to the chase, uh, barring, barring all, that, all that stuff, is that in a Bitcoin, the UTXO set, I think, is three and a half gigabytes. Pretty manageable by everyday computers, right? Uh, you know, my computer at home has like 32 gigabytes of RAM, right? But uh, admittedly, it's a desktop. You know, plenty of people might have laptops with eight gigabytes of RAM. And you can keep this entire state in RAM, which is great because you need to do random accesses into the state. We never need to do random accesses in the history. And in fact, like the EVM, for instance, or the Bitcoin consensus rules, never look into the history. They don't care about what happened in past transactions. They only care about what is the current state of my virtual machine. In Ethereum, the uncompressed state size is 45 gigabytes. So I don't know if Eric Wall was on ever, or if you guys discussed Eric Wall's syncing of a full node. It took him like 25 days to sync an Ethereum full node from scratch because the state size is 45 gigabytes. He couldn't keep in a RAM, so it constantly had to be like swapped out from his SSD, essentially. Uh, and this is kind of the problem, is that state cannot be pruned. It must be kept in its entirety, and it must be kept in its entirety in a way that you can do fast random accesses. Uh, it's a so reasonable, this, that's, a, that's a reasonable qualifier. I'd say that's, 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 that's good. Yeah, and this is where roll-up scales. This is where it gets scalability benefit from. Because the state, all the state accesses are not done on-chain. They're done off-chain. All the state transitions are done off-chain. The only thing that gets posted on-chain is the actual data. And it turns out that the amount of data that full nodes can just download, hash once, and then save to disk, even on a hard disk, you don't need an SSD to do this, even on a hard disk, the amount of data that you know even average consumers, laptops can process and you know, they and then they can store the disk and so on with an average internet connection is can get you to visa levels worth of transactions. And it'll make full nodes actually cheaper to run because now you won't need a fast SSD. You can even do this on a hard disk. And this is like a really like paradigm shift completely to what all the previous scalability proposals that have been done previously. Who needs to care? So like say for instance, there's a specific, you know, cohort of people that enter into uh, optimistic rollup, right? Start using it yeah. to, to, to transact amongst each other. Does anyone else other than that group of people, uh, actually, is it the entire set of those group of people who need to watch all the transactions to make sure everything's going appropriate? Or And huh. who needs to download all these transactions and maintain them and keep track of them? Uh, because what's being stored is the state root in, in the blockchain. So like, that's what you're, what you're doing in any level two um, technology is you're rooting your trust and security model into the main chain below it, right? And so yep. like, that's just the trust of everything that happened is valid and we can prove it and we're putting it here so it can't be tampered with. But in the process of doing all of those things, you still need to keep track of all the stuff that gets passed around that so no, there's no fuckery involved, right? Who has to do that for optimistic rollout? Yeah, so I'm going to get into who has the incentive to do this and who does this uh, a bit later. But first, wait, you said two points. The first one was who who has the incentive to do this. And the second point you made was... Oh, who uh, has to do this? Like, like who yeah, has to I do guess this. that's the yes. same, same situation, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, uh, so, so I'll actually get to that later, as it's one of the interesting benefits of optimistic rollups over, for example, plasma variants. Uh, so I'll get to that a bit later. Uh, do you mind if I kind of go over now how optimistic rollups works as opposed to ZK rollups? Uh, and then we can go over the nice properties, and that includes an answer to your question. Rock and roll. Okay, perfect. So optimistic rollups. It's actually very similar to ZK rollups. Uh, so let's start by supposing we have a leader. And we'll, we'll, after I'm finished the description of the system, I'll discuss how you can do leader selection. Right, so let's suppose we have a leader. Uh, the leader must, well, the leader could do nothing, right? but if they decide to do something, they must extend the tip of the sidechain. Uh, and the on-chain, on what the contract saves on-chain, is essentially all the block headers of this sidechain, or this roll-up chain. Uh, not, not just the latest. Technically, you could do it with just the latest block header. But really, you'd want you know, for convenience. You, let's let's just say that you have all the block headers. So you can think of this kind of like running a light client for the sidechain, and you're running this in a contract. Uh, so the leader uh, will submit a transaction, and then this commits to kind of the entire sidechain block. Uh, this includes the block header and all the transactions and all the witness data, so all the signatures. Note that in zk rollups, I said transactions earlier. This was actually not entirely true. In zk rollups, you don't need the transactions; you just need the state transitions. So you don't need the actual transaction itself, and you don't need the signatures. You just need the actual state transitions. And the zk rollup, the when you know, when it generates the proof, it'll check that there exists a signature. So you don't actually have to provide this on chain. So you do get some benefit in terms of okay, you you can call this a compression because you don't have to post a signature on chain. This isn't actually meaningful because, for instance, you can use a BLS aggregate, aggregate signature that is like constant sized for you know as many transactions as you want, and therefore you know the difference between a single constant sized signature for like say a thousand transactions and just a thousand transactions with no signature, the difference between these two is basically nothing. So again, the reason uh, roll-up scales, lots of people say, is because you know of compression or you know of validating transactions succinctly. It's not. It's because it doesn't do state accesses because you just post the transactions. Okay, good. So in optimistic rollups, you do need to actually post the entire transactions, not just the state transition. So you need to post the entire transactions and the witness data, so the signatures. Uh, and you also need to include a bond. You don't need to do this with zk rollups because I mean, I guess you could post a bond, but then since ZK rollups, you know, you immediately in the same block verify the ZK proof, and then you know if it's invalid, you just don't extend the chain. Here, you do things optimistically, so you need a bond. And then, by construction, by the above, since the leader must extend the tip of the chain, it's fork-free, right? You no forking. That is how it is by construction. The smart contract enforces this. Uh, if you try to extend something that's not the tip, then it just rejects your block. Okay. So if a block is invalid, anyone, not just the leader, anyone can submit a fraud proof that will roll back the tip to the immediately previous block, to the fraudulent one. And they will claim half the bonds of all the orphan blocks, and the other half is burned. Note that this half is technically a system parameter, but it does need to be greater than zero. Like you do need to burn, or not greater than zero, but you need to burn a portion of the bonds, and you need to reward a portion of the bonds to the fraud prover. Uh, if you don't burn any of the bonds, then uh, someone can essentially front run their own fraud and recoup yeah. their entire bond. Uh, and this was uh, something when Plasma Group initially uh, released their their iteration or their version of optimistic rollups. Uh, then they had this issue. Uh, in in my 
version of Optimistic Rollups. So when I created Optimistic Rollups, I think it was back in June, uh, they released theirs in August. So they probably should have based their design off of mine, and, uh, but I guess they didn't because in my design, you burn half and you roar half, specifically to avoid the front running issue. So uh, anyone can submit a fraud proof, and like all systems of fraud proofs, there's a synchrony assumption. You know, it'll be, let's say two weeks, it could be anything, but you know, it's, it's a long period of time. And then after that, sidechain blocks that aren't fraudulent, we consider them valid, we consider them finalized. Uh, so depositing funds is easy, just like with the sidechain. You just send funds to a contract, it gets minted on the sidechain. Uh, and withdrawing funds, now this is where it gets really easy, which is withdrawing funds, you just start a withdrawal on the sidechain by burning some funds. And then once that sidechain block becomes finalized, like once it's assumed valid by the contract, you can just do the, you can complete the withdrawal non-interactively on-chain. Uh, and you can do this because optimistic rollups is permissionless and Plasma is permissioned. So in Plasma, you actually have to start the withdrawals uh, on-chain. You can't start them on the sidechain because Plasma, Plasma is permissioned. So those are kind of one of the nice benefits of optimistic So there's rollups. a specific call within the sidechain that says withdrawal. That burns those funds. Yep. And then when that gets finalized, that allows you to withdraw them from the smart contract of yep. if, if you are the owner of the same, of, of the person who called the withdrawal function. Yep. Okay. I'm yep. still, so having, a, I'm still having a bit of an issue with the, like, consensus of this, right? Like, like, the, like yeah. how, so we'll get how that things get aggregated right and who gets yeah. to say. We'll get that, to that right now, which is, okay. like I said, after I finish the description, we'll go to leader selection. And that's, that's what we're getting to right now. So leader selection, right? Because before I said, okay, some leader extends the chain, but who the hell is the leader, right? Uh, so the way this works is what I call merge consensus. And this was kind of the topic of my research over the past year when I said I was doing layer two scalability research. It's this merge consensus idea. And it's a consensus protocol that's entirely verifiable on-chain. And kind of the way you can think about this is that uh, consensus protocols usually have a few properties. They have a fork choice rule. Uh, so you know you have multiple forks. How do you decide which one is, in fact, the canonical chain? You have a block validity function. So this is you know, just your state transition. You have leader selection, and you have a simple resistance mechanism, you know, work, stake, or whatever, and so on. And you kind of combine all of these, and then you get security, which is the cost of manipulating the blockchain history, right? You know, doing reorgs and censoring and so on, right? Uh, and what you want is a consensus protocol with these properties and so on that's fully verifiable on chain. And we know that Nakamoto consensus doesn't work because it kind of tightly couples the fork choice rule the leader selection and the simple resistance, right? Everything's kind of tied together. Yeah. Whoever wins the block kind of gets to extend the chain and so on, right? But the trick is there's no like time stamping. It's just the longest chain eventually will win out, but it's not guaranteed to win out immediately because there's no like time stamping. Yeah, right? you, have, you have probabilistic finality, which is exactly and that is not verifiable to the hash rate of those blocks. Exactly, okay. and that is not verifiable oh, on chain, right? Just put that exactly. Up. Like if you if, I, if if you give me like two blocks, do you actually know on chain which one came first in an Akimoto consensus? The answer is no. They can make up their own timestamps, right? That's the problem. Uh, so Nakamoto consensus doesn't work. So you can't use just proof of work for this, right? But what's some things that do work? So the nice thing to notice is by construction, optimistic rollup is fork free, right? So you don't need a fork choice rule. Or rather, you just need a trivial fork choice rule, which is just take the only fork that exists. Easy. Uh, the block validity function, so in ZK rollups, the block validity is the ZK proof. In optimistic rollups, the block validity is you don't validate it on chain. You say, you know, I assume it's valid unless someone submits a fraud proof within a certain time up period, say two weeks. 
So we don't need a block validity function on chain. We do need to have some some rules in there to kind of verify fraud proofs, but you don't actually do the validation of every block. So really what we're left with is on chain. We really need to do a leader selection and simple resistance. So there's actually a number of ways you can do this and they all work. They all have like the same theoretical guarantees. So the way I originally proposed is that you can just do a first come first serve. So literally anyone who submits a transaction that extends the chain gets to extend the chain and that's it. And uh, civil resistance is provided by transaction fees, by the main chain's block capacity. And this works because the main chain provides security. You don't need to have like an amazing civil resistance mechanism. You don't need to have you know perfect leader selection. You don't need like a you know great fork choice rule that accounts for all these you know synchrony assumptions and that you know and the honest majority assumptions and all that stuff. There's no honest majority assumption, right? There's no one notarizing block. There's no longest chain. You just need a leader to extend the chain. If it's invalid, someone submits a fraud proof. This is the amazing thing is that there's not there's no honest majority assumption here. It just you're just doing leader selection. And therefore, you can do something really simple. And what I propose is just first come, first serve. I feel like but that's, you can that's do, easily dossable. Uh, if the main oh, chain yeah. is not sorry, if the main chain is censorship resistant, then it's not easy to doss that, right? Like you can say, oh, I pay a higher transaction fee, but a higher transaction fee kind of gets you into an earlier block, maybe, but doesn't guarantee you're placed ahead of other people in the same block, right? You would actually have to bribe miners to reorder the transactions. And note that from like a crypto economic security perspective, uh, forcing a reordering of a transaction across all blocks is equivalent to censoring it. There's no difference between the two. So yeah. if the, sorry? You said, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, which is like, you know, really bizarre property. It's like, you know, you can think, think of censoring, like ordering a transaction always just past the end of the block capacity. So there's, there's functionally no difference between the two. Uh, so as long as the main chain is central position, which again, well, this is our you know starting assumption, uh, then this works. Note that this is just a proposal. It's not necessarily the best way to do it. And the nice thing is it's merge consensus. It's a consensus protocol that's fully verifiable on chain. So you can actually do anything. One thing you can do is random plus proof of stake. People can just stake coins like ether or whatever, and then they can execute random to generate a random number to shuffle them around and then choose the next leader. And you can do this on chain entirely. Uh, so there's like a million different ways you can think of doing this, right? You can use a VDF if VDFs ever get made. Who knows? Uh, you know, you can use a different random number generator. There's like a million things you can do. It just as long as it's verifiable on chain. And that's basically it. That's like oh, and I guess now we have to answer a question, which is who has the incentive or who will you know check who who will generate these fraud proofs? So the nice thing is I'm not getting the key innovation here. That's actually where I am right now. Uh, so I want to give you a chance to go through the whole like presentation spiel of like how of of, of the data, but I, I'm not really following what the key innovation here is with the rollups. So maybe you can help me understand this. All I hear uh, so mm. so people, well, I guess right. we'll get to that. Yeah, that yeah. yeah. So like I'm, I'm so there's like all this talk of what we're committing and who's the, you know who does leader selection blah 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 okay but that, that's cool and all where do these transactions reside yeah so we'll get to that very shortly uh i guess i'll answer Corey's point first which is that uh you know who kind of has the incentive or who who will uh you know check for check for fraudulent transactions or fraudulent blocks right yeah so I, since the consensus also yeah, like, like, part of my question was what colin asked too is like 
where do these transactions live? Because they're not getting put on the blockchain. And who has to, and who has to hold them and manage them? Hmm. What is the roll-up mechanism? Where is that roll-up being put? How is that roll-up being maintained? And and I think you've gone over some of that, and it just it just didn't absorb for some reason. So maybe you could help me, yeah. like. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll cover that after answering the Corey's question first. Yes, I'll cover that. Uh, so to answer Corey's question is that since the since it's permissionless, right, and since it's fork free, if you're a validator and you build or like a leader or whatever, and you build upon an invalid block, eventually someone's going to submit a fraud proof and take your bond. So you don't want to build upon an invalid block, just like when you're in minor proof of work, you don't want to build upon an invalid block, because then your block might get orphaned, right? Uh, so every single block producer in the system is incentivized to validate the blocks they're building upon, just as they are Nakamoto consensus. That's kind of where the incentive lies. But anyone, if they wanted to be absolutely certain of you know the security of their funds, could do all the validation themselves client-side. Uh, which brings us to kind of one interesting point, which is that uh, one common criticism uh, or misunderstanding of the optimistic roll-ups is that it introduces high latency. They give to wait two weeks before your transaction is finalized. And that's not entirely true because you can actually do client-side validation since it's fork-free. You're guaranteed that valid blocks will eventually finalize. And therefore, if you do client-side validation, you can immediately accept valid blocks as final because you know they will eventually finalize. So like as soon as you see that block, it is the same security guarantees as Ethereum, like the same cost to reorg it. Uh, so you don't actually have to wait two weeks to accept a transaction. You can accept it immediately. Uh, and if you want instant withdrawals, because you don't want to wait two weeks to withdraw your coins, uh, you can actually just use atomic swaps with the liquidity providers. So someone, say, on the main chain can provide liquidity and will atomic swap you out of the side chain. So they essentially now have funds on the side chain. You have funds on the main chain. They, you know, they charge a little fee for the liquidity. Uh, and they don't mind waiting two weeks to withdraw a bunch of their money. Uh, so this kind of opens up an interesting market for liquidity providers that can provide the service trustlessly. And again, it's completely trustless because the liquidity providers uh, know their atomic swap won't kind of get reorged under them, which is a big problem for cross-chain atomic swaps, right? What happens if one of the two chains kind of gets reorged, and then you know half of the atomic swap gets just gets invalidated? Uh, with optimistic rollups, you don't have this issue. Valid blocks will eventually finalize. So with client-side validation, uh, the liquidity provider knows, like as soon as you commit to your half of the atomic swap, they can commit to theirs and complete it. Uh, is there? I'm, maybe I'm missing this part. Are we trying to have an auditable sidechain where I can always see the history of every single coin and when it was when it was put on chain and when it was left? Yes. Okay. Where do all of those transactions live because they're not being put okay. somewhere? Yeah. So all the transactions, the transaction data lives on the main chain. Isn't and that that doesn't increase state. It only increases the I guess if you would like to run a full node, it increases what you have to have in terms of, well, I'm trying well, to think so of- It doesn't actually increase what you have to have because you as say a main chain full node do not need to keep history around. This is kind of one of the unspoken evils of blockchain. Okay, then it's more of like, the, his, like the archival node, right? Those like for the for the block block explorers that want to keep the history of the, yeah. like the entire history of the blockchain so they can perform lookups appropriately. Um, they'll need to, to carry the yes. burden of this. Yes. So me, the reason this is also not an issue for block explorers is that, so I guess, so archive node, I guess archive node. So this is, you know, where it gets confusing because Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, use different nomenclature, right? 
So to be clear, let's say an archive node for Ethereum, right? This is the one where after every block, or I guess maybe after every transaction, there is a kind of a snapshot of the state of the system, right? The problem of this is it means now you have this enormous snapshot that's like way bigger than a block currently. Like this is 45 gigabytes, right? And you need to keep the snapshot around. That's why block, uh, you know, archive nodes in Ethereum are two terabytes in size, right? Because you need to keep like this, you know, huge snapshot of the state very often. Uh, so imagine instead of having two terabytes, which is just basically wasted because it's like a lot of redundant state elements. Imagine if you had two terabytes of just raw transaction data. That would be much easier for block explorers to handle, right? It's just it's just history. It just you could put it on your disk and it's easy peasy, right? Uh, and there's no like you know tight intertwining. You don't have to do a bunch of like weird random access. It's just transactions. Uh, I'd say so if much you would easier. like to be able to search that efficiently, you'll still need to index that information appropriately, right? And that's the majority of the weight of uh, archival nodes is yeah. is the index is built so that you can query it appropriately because the way we store yeah. blockchain data is, is not built for querying. So like yeah. if you would like to if you would like to audit this type of level two feature, something is going to need to be built so that it could be queryable. Now that's that yeah. information will exist on the blockchain, just not necessarily in current state. And so, like that's yeah. where I it's where I maybe see potential hangups if this gets big. Is it's going to be kind of like what it is for Ethereum right now, maybe a little more exacerbated. It's going to be hard to find historical data for any regular user. Uh, I would say so. In my opinion, at least, I mean, different people have different opinions, but in my opinion, this isn't the problem because we can get or like if all you're doing is just you know storing history in a they're just putting in this on your hard disk. Uh, since you don't have you know, all these state accesses, this is not actually that expensive. And even if you index it like Block Explorer, it's not that significant. Yeah, I'm not worried about that so much right now. I'm still trying to work off, out the fundamentals here. You didn't realize our so, brains work very differently. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what is getting committed to the chain? Yeah, so on-chain, what is getting committed is all the sidechain transaction data. All the sidechain transaction data, but yes. not the raw transaction data, correct? Like this is the, so the side chains could have you know thousands of transactions that uh, you know this is a roll up of that side chain data, correct? Uh, so the optimistic roll ups is the raw transaction data in their entirety. On on chain is being committed. Yep. yep. Why why isn't that why why is that better than just using the chain? Oh, because this is cheaper. So. Uh, like I said, it took Eric Wall to sync his Ethereum full node. It, uh, to sync his Ethereum full node, it took Eric Wall like 25 days, right? And this yep. is like 250 gigabytes of history. The state uh -huh. size is 45 gigabytes. Uh, if I told you, if all you had to do was say like download one terabyte of data and just download it and nothing else, right. how long would that take you approximately? Do you think? Depends oh, on my connection. Downloading and not not oh. having to do state transitions on on well, that is is where yeah. the, the the savings comes from. Yes, I'm worried about months. like not, I mean, I guess uh, gas so, cost comes from like the storage is quite expensive on the blockchain. Uh, only state storage, uh, history storage. So 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 here's the kind of the evil, like I was saying, is that blockchains rely on altruism. You actually can't price history storage in protocol because you can't enforce that people keep history in protocol, right? Like if you charge like, right. you know, whatever amount of gas and you say, you know, people are going to keep it, but people don't, full nodes, and this is the evil that people don't talk about when, and even Bitcoin relies on altruism is full nodes don't need to keep history. They can prune it. They only need the latest state and maybe like 
you know, some previous that they can keep it in the block headers. Yep. All right. So, but like, okay, I'm still not getting the very basic like current state process. Okay. I have, I walk me through a user journey here, man. Uh, I am, I am going to join a side chain. It is uh, Adler chain. Uh, it is your test chain. And I, uh, I'm going to uh, withdraw some ETH and put it into your side chain. Okay. Right. And uh, Corey and every member of status decide to also join this. And every member of consensus also decides to join this. And we're all going to like swap our Ethereum around for coffee, whatever. We do this every day. About 500 transactions go through an hour. Okay. Yep. Um, you know, it's a reasonable amount. It's not ridiculous. I've made that. Whatever. Um, when are those transactions committed to chain? On demand immediately? It depends on how you do leader selection. Okay. Uh, Let's just say we do the uh, the uh, first person to publish gets a block. Yeah. So in the, the first come, first serve, then it's basically whoever wants to. There could be within this participant set. There could be you know outside the participant set, and there could be aggregating transactions in some sort of peer-to-peer -peer mempool. Yeah. Right? There could be. It could also be not peer-to-peer. -peer. It could be like each aggregator uh, just wants to like have their own server, their own like local pool of transactions. Then you just like submit submit a transaction via like some HTTP request or something, and like right. here's the transaction, right? Yeah. There's there's different ways, but you know they have the transaction, they aggregate it, they commit it on chain. Yeah. Now somebody now somebody decides they're just going to publish a transaction, and then like. Their trans that somebody else is also trying to publish at same time. They have half of each other's transactions in there. Um, the other half is something they maybe didn't decide to include for whatever reason. What is going to separate those two, and how do we like what what would make that valid? What's doing the actual checking to make sure that you're not? I mean, obviously that would be a double spend for half of those transactions. What's actually verifying that that didn't happen? The fraud proof. The fraud proof. Yeah. So uh, on chain, someone submits a fraud proof that. Attest to, or that you know, shows that, or, or not shows, that proves that something that violated the consensus rules was committed to. Okay, now that they're submitting it to the chain in the form of a transaction, so whoever decides to pick their transaction and put it onto the a block, right? There, they don't know that they're running a side chain. So, what is what is actually no, doing? No, they do. So the aggregators, I mean, they do know. They have to run like a sidechain full node. So they would know they are an aggregator. Well, I'm about Ethereum on the Ethereum side. So when oh, the, the point, no. So the the Ethereum. This is the this is the beauty is that this is outside consensus of Ethereum. Uh, like the Ethereum consensus protocol is not affected by this in any way. This runs entirely on chain. So the Ethereum miners don't care. They just see transactions. See, this is the this is the confusing part. This is where there's two chains. So. Yeah. When when we said where how does it get committed on chain and all this stuff I I was talking about Ethereum. Um, yeah, me too. Oh, you were. Yes. So what oh, is? Sorry, wait. No, okay, sorry. I I was not. I was. Yes, my <laughs> bad. I was talking about the side chain. Okay. okay. Let me rephrase then. Okay. So we're gonna need to we're gonna need to make this language a little clearer. Side chain, main chain. Don't say chain. I think we're both very smart people. I just think it's it's very it's like there's a lot of data here to ingest, and I need to get this I need to get this uh, language down. So we're gonna talk. Well, whenever I say chain, I'm going to say Ethereum, and whenever okay. I say uh, side chain, I'm going to just say side chain. Um, so uh, transactions are posted to the side chain. They do the roll up there, or do they do the roll up on Ethereum? So they aggregate the transactions into blocks on the side chain. Okay. And then once they have once they've constructed a block, they mm -hmm. commit it to Ethereum. Okay, and so who's posting it to Ethereum? The leader of whatever, whoever decides to post it, correct? Yes. Okay, cool. 
So somebody just randomly says, I got a block. I like this block. I'm going to post this for whatever reason, right? Yep. I'm going to handle this now. Um, somebody, somebody put out a withdrawal from Ethereum requests. Therefore, somebody's got to handle this. I'm just going to go ahead and do it, right? Yep. All right. Now, two people do that in the same 14-second time span, and they reside on the same block. Well, this is why the first-come-first-serve is not ideal, because in the first-come-first-serve, you have race conditions, where two people try to extend from the same tip. So the mm -hmm. first one who gets in is the one who extends the tip. The second one is that a block is rejected. Right. But this the first-come-first-serve has the availability has an availability bonus, meaning that if anybody could post a block, then you don't have to wait on a leader or make sure the leader is constantly up. Yeah. Right. And it's simple. Uh, all right. So uh, what about using a classical consensus protocol to do leader election? And if that leader becomes unavailable, you could swap the leaders that way. Yeah. You don't have to do that on chain. This is all off chain. They run raft. When the leader is elected, they go ahead and use that well, as the leader. That's kind of the goal, no, no, right? No, is, is no, no, you, would no, like, you would like that part to live on chain. No, so the leader selection needs to be done on-chain. It needs to be verifiable on-chain. Because otherwise, you rely on an honest majority assumption that reports to some correct execution of the leader selection. That's, and you don't want that. You don't want to rely on an honest majority assumption of the right. side validated. You've got an availability problem with the leader. Well, well, oh, even availability problem? Like if the leader just goes offline? Yeah. Well, then they lose money. They lose some stake, right? Like say you do Randall plus proof of stake, right? right. If the leader is not online and they you know they're assigned as the leader for the slot of this period of time and they don't commit to a block then you they just lose their stake yeah that's fine but that's not fine for the people that are trying to like so where does is the money ever brought off chain so is there any sort of like committing my money to adler chain so that it is locked up and so that it's in your smart contract and how do i exit um, in case you go offline because your internet out because of weather, like you got hit by a hurricane, you couldn't keep your shit up. So you just make sure that the uh, you make sure that as long as the leader selection is permissionless, so that anyone can join, yeah. then you just become a leader and you create your own block eventually. Now the interesting thing about these protocols is they basically all rely on this thing where if you manage to do something in finite time, then you're good. But they don't care what that finite time is. It could be really long. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunate, but when you do these, you know, proofs of, of the security properties, is that's what that's what you kind of have. Yeah, so as I long think as this is a disconnect from like what most people, I don't think, at least my understanding of level two technology is that um, it's almost. I, I feel as though it's fundamental in that it takes time to get on a chain, and it takes time to get off a chain. Once you're on it, you can do whatever the hell you want. The, the main difficulty of all of the different solutions between. Uh, level two technologies is how the hell do you get off the chain in a in the most trustless and available manner? This is yeah. what John feels to be the best option so far. Yeah. So to to answer that, uh, in terms of like depositing, depositing, you know, it's it's usually easy. You just deposit. You just deposit into a contract. This is basically easy for all of the proposals. As uh, the withdrawing that you know takes various time. So the nice thing about it being permissionless uh, is that you can always. Uh, I guess you can rely usually on the existence of a liquidity provider that will atomic swap your funds out, right? And if the liquidity provider is there, you essentially, as a, from a user's perspective, get your funds out immediately. You no longer have to wait like a long withdrawal period, and this is very powerful. Well, tell me more about this liquidity provider. What is what is what do you mean by that? Uh, you just have someone that has a bunch of money, and so this is actually where things get really interesting. Uh, in channels, let's say. Uh, you can't close your channel and like give 
give your money, give you know, the funds in the channel to someone else, trust us they and they know that they're going to get it, trust us they and all that stuff, right? It's like you have to wait until your channel's closed and then your funds are unlocked and then you can do stuff. Mm-hmm. So you can't like do you can't do an atomic swap with the liquidity provider because again with the normal channel, if you're trying to assign ownership, you know, or you're trying to like assign someone else to be to represent you as kind of one of the participants in the channel, then you can double spend this, right? Which is why you know in Plasma Cash you need the blockchain to order these. Uh, so you know the normal channel you can't do this kind of atomic swap. So how does how does this kind of work? So someone has a bunch of money. Right, and optimistic rollups. Someone just has a bunch of money. They're on chain, right? And they watch and they wait and see through some communication protocol that someone wants to withdraw funds from the optimistic rollups back to the Ethereum chain, right? And then they offer for some for some cut of the money, right? For some percentage, they say, "Hey, I will atomic swap your funds out from that side chain so that you now have funds on the main chain from the Ethereum chain, and I'm going to have your funds on the on the side chain." And the liquidity provider is okay with this because they don't mind waiting two weeks to withdraw their funds. They don't care. They just have a bunch of money sitting there, right? And this is risk-free. They can do client-side validation, and they know that a valid block will eventually finalize. So this is risk-free for them. It is literally risk-free money. They're paying, they're paying, paying for their money. Instant, instant withdrawal. Yeah, the like, users normally it would take you, withdrawal. like from a security standpoint, two weeks to say I have my money back on the main chain. If that's exactly. if that's the if that's the time period, what people are doing is they have both money on the main chain and money on the side chain and they say all right give me your money on the side chain and I'll, i will give you money on the main chain instantly and yep. i'll just take that and go through the two-week process myself for the fee well they don't even have to do the two-week they process they can to. just leave they, that money there could, for like right it depends on whatever they're whatever they're, they're yeah. doing in terms of being a provider yeah, like they're not in a hurry, right? They have a bunch of money just sitting there, and they can use this money and make money out of it by be, you know, essentially acting as a service provider. And this is risk-free. Certainly interesting, and I I feel as though I need I I need I want to and need to know more. <laughs> what are some of the transactions that that are happening on the chain? What is the nature of them? Are they are they exactly um, Ethereum transactions? Uh, on the side chain, you mean? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Right, yeah, I did that again. My bad. Yeah. 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 Are they exactly Ethereum transactions on the side chain? Well, on the side chain. So this is where things get interesting. Is what kind of fraud proof do you use? And uh, I've been talking to the Arbitrum guys who are working on this interactive verification game rollup type system. And there's kind of three. There's three types of rollups uh, according to their classification, which I agree with. There's non-interactive rollups, uh, which are commonly called zk rollups. So these ones here, there's no interaction, right? You post the zero knowledge proof, you post the transactions, you verify in one block, and then it's either valid or invalid, and that's it, right? Then there's single round interactive rollup, and this is called optimistic rollups. The reason it's single round is that uh, someone first commits to a block, and then you have a single round fraud proof to invalidate the block later. But there is still technically interaction, right? There is a synchrony assumption when you're using fraud proofs. So it's not completely non-interactive. The fraud proof itself is non-interactive, but the entire system is not non-interactive. Right? It has a single round interaction. Uh, and kind of a lot of, when I created optimistic rollups, a lot of the designer work I did was to make it non-interactive, or to make it single round interactive rather, because Plasma Cache has multi-round interactivity, which is more vulnerable to chain congestion under certain conditions, in addition to being horrible UX, et cetera. Uh, so the third classification of rollups, which is what the Arbitrum guys are working on, which is very interesting, is the multi-round interactive rollup. And this one is where you use an, a TrueBit-like interactive verification game, right? Where you kind of uh, are you guys familiar with TrueBit? 
Yeah, we've had them on a few times. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so so use use an interactive verification game, and it has benefits because you know you can do way more complex calculations in this interactive verification game than you can do with fraud proofs. Uh, so with regards to what the transactions look like, the answer is it depends on what people do. So one example is Fuel Labs, uh, which is pretty close to launching their uh, a public testnet, uh, is using like a UTXO data model. Uh, and very efficient and compact fraud proofs for UTXOs. Uh, and then, so you can do things like payments, you can do exchanges, you can do stateless predicate scripting, like kind of what, like what, kind of like what Bitcoin allows. Uh, you can all, and Fuel kind of offers all this. Uh, but you can't do Uniswap on this because you don't have like, you know, a nice accounts data model uh, and all this stuff, right? So if you want to build Uniswap, well, you have to use some sort of you know general purpose execution engine of some sort, right? Uh, and kind of the naive way that you think is, well, let's just use fraud proofs just like you would, and let's use the EVM on the sidechain so that you can you know use Solidity and use all these nice tools, and you know everything will be great. It turns out that's a terrible idea because you can't easily verify EVM inside the EVM non-interactively. Like you can't do a fraud proof of EVM inside the EVM. It's way too expensive. You have to make a whole bunch of changes to the point that it's no longer even the same solidity. It's no longer anything. Uh, I don't know if there's any groups crazy out there that are trying to do this. Hopefully not. Uh, but the other alternative and viable approach, if you want to do general purpose computation, is you use you know the multi-round interactive rollup, what Arbitrum is doing. Uh, and this allows you to basically do any arbitrary computation. There are certain, you know, uh, things that there's certain trade-offs between using you know the single round interactive rollups, which is the fraud proofs, and versus using the multi-round interactive rollups, which is you know the interactive verification interactive verification game. There's certain trade-offs there in terms of like how secure are they against chain congestion, what's the UI around these, uh, and so on. But if you want to do general purpose computation, then you can do it with you know uh, this interactive verification game, what the Arbitrum guys are doing, and that'll probably get you fairly close to you know running ethereum style smart contracts at layer two so to answer i guess the kind of tldr of this is that it depends because the nice thing about optimistic rollups is that as long as you can generate either fraud proof or an interactive verification game now uh you can just do whatever you want there's no restriction on the particular transaction format when transactions are posted to ethereum what does that look like when transactions are posted to ethereum uh what do you mean by what does that look like is it a like what is the nature of the transaction? Is it a transaction containing data? Is mm, the so do you know what call data is? Yeah. 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 So it's basically in the call data, you just have all the you just have the sidechain block. You have a shitload of call data. Yes. Yes. Wow. And this is a new design <laughs> paradigm. Using blockchains as a data availability layer is kind of a new design paradigm that people haven't just aren't used to. Uh, and there's new projects, for example, Lazy Ledger, that are built from the ground up to offer massive data availability throughput. We're talking like tens to, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, all while retaining the same security guarantees just because they focus on data availability. Uh, but this kind of scheme where you know you use a transaction and you use a blockchain just for data availability offers sustainable scaling, and it's to a much greater extent without increasing the cost of full nodes uh, as dispar disproportionately. Uh, and to that end, I've actually started writing up some EIPs, and I've written some proposals on ETH research to improve the way Ethereum works with you know, using the chain as a data availability layer. The first one is EIP 2242, which introduces a new field in the transaction, uh, which I call post data, name subject to change. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not great at naming things. Uh, uh, but it's essentially for data that's posted on chain for these kind of you know roll-up type schemes. And the post data is not accessible to the EVM. Call data is, right? The EVM can actually read from the call data and load it into the EVM. Post data is not. So you, when you have a transaction with post data, uh, kind of the client will know there's this invariant here. That there's a promise that this post data, the EVM will never see it. So you never have to process it. All you have to do is just dump it to the disk, and you're good to go. And, uh, and you can then, potentially prune it if you don't care about it. Yes. Uh, as long as, well, if you design it nicely so that instead of holding the whole post data, you just have like a hash of it in your transaction, then I guess technically you could just prune it and full nodes could just keep a hash of the data and then still be able to like validate. So I'm trying, I'm trying to picture and imagine a world where this is this is the scaling solution, right? Everyone uses it and we have yes. a tremendous amount of uh, cohorts of people rooting themselves into the main chain Ethereum this way, right? And just dumping a tremendous amount of transaction data into history, basically. And then yeah. who's going to bury the burden of carrying all of this and keeping track of it? And yeah. it, it, in my opinion, it can only work if nodes can selectively choose to keep or not keep this information based on whether or not they care about it. Yeah, yeah. And it can be constructed so that can more easily prune this. So you are talking over each other on that one. Can you, Colin, what did you say? You need kind of a sub sub network model. I mean, and and that's, I'm definitely biased towards that for obvious reasons. But it's a it's it's just um, it seems to me like I don't want to store your crap and like and that's like like well, you know isn't like, that the this, plight of all Ethereum? Like it's or, or all uh, blockchains right now? Because like I'm like I'm I'm kind of like do I actually care about this side chain over in um you know Kenya? Here's the difference. Uh, Here's the difference in like, roll up and what current blockchain solutions have offered so far is that. I'm okay at storing it. I don't want to have to process it, and that's. I think that's where that's where rollup it gets it gets its, its quote unquote scalability from. Is you no longer yeah. have to process all of this transactional data ever. It's just stored on the main chain. Yeah, and I was kind of getting to this earlier, but then I guess I got completely sidetracked, which I apologize for. Uh, which is you know just downloading even like two terabytes of data and just putting it on your hard disk is not expensive, and like even block explorers won't find just doing this harder. You know, user full nodes, like end user full nodes, there's not an expensive thing, right? Like I was just looking at Black Friday deals and I saw like a, you know, 12 terabyte hard drive and I was like $400. You know, yeah. that's like an absurd amount oh, of transactions. That, 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 that will continue to get better and better and better over time. Exactly. Hard drive density and bandwidth, like download bandwidth is just going to keep getting better and better. Yeah. Processing speed, like not so much. CPU and RAM especially, because again, like you need fast random accesses into, into the state. You know, RAM speeds, and RAM capacities have not kept up with things like you know uh, parallel processing capacity and your hard drive disk, uh, hard disk capacities and bandwidth. So, uh, what is the ideal like use case? I mean, what is, what's the ideal scenario like usage scenario? What is the throughput you're looking to get through these side channels? So oh, on sorry, side, side chains. Apologies. Side chains. Uh, so uh, uh, when Fuel Labs launches, it'll probably have about 200 transactions per second on current Ethereum. Okay. Uh, which is you know a substantial improvement, and again, it'll do this sustainably. Is that now Ethereum no longer has to worry as much about token state bloat, state bloat from token transfers, uh, and then with some minor optimizations, uh, again, you know, with the post data and so on, and you can add some extra stuff on top of this post data, which I you know did some research post about. Uh, you can probably get the number up to about two thousand transactions per second on mm -hmm. Ethereum. Again, with the same nice trustless and you know, decentralized uh, permissionless guarantees, same security and all that. Uh, and you can get about 2,000 transactions per second. This is just for simple payments, though. 
Right. Uh, in terms oh, of arbitrary computation, that's that's a different story. But you can still probably get a few hundred transactions per second. So the sidechain state is still stored. Uh, like, let's just say uh, it's still stored on, like, on chain, quote unquote. But you're well, it's stored on the sidechain. Like on the sidechain full nodes will have to maintain state for the sidechain. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yes. I, I I was under the impression that you're saying that you had to commit all the transactions to the to the Ethereum chain. The transactions, you, yes. You but do. The state is going to be kept in the sidechain. So like the state is maintained on the okay. sidechain, but it's the yep. data associated with the transactions yep. where they live is is stayed on Ethereum chain main chain. Okay. Yes. And, and so uh, transactions, so the state flow only happens on the sidechain in terms like, of. Yeah. how things are processed and maintained and kept up to date so that you understand what the current state of that sidechain is. That happens all on the yeah. sidechain and whatever nodes are running that sidechain. The data associated with what built that state is always going to be on the Ethereum main chain. Yep. Yeah, that's a lot of data, potentially. Oh, that's, what I, yeah, that's definitely a lot of data. I mean, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> using blockchains in this paradigm is a lot of data. It's an enormous amount of data, but it turns out this do, using blockchains in this way is sustainable and it's actually highly scalable. On Ethereum, though, so uh, because Ethereum is making the necessary changes, that, that EIP correct is so that you could actually do yeah. this, so that it would write to file instead of or write side, you know, on the side instead of like actually necessarily committing it onto the chain. But then, uh, it so, so so with this post data, uh, again, there's the first of probably four EIPs. You can do nice things because now you have an invariant, you have a guarantee that is not going to be uh, processed by the EVM. So you can do nice things. For example, you can process it, you can like Merkleize it, and then just Merkleize it client side, multi-threaded in parallel. Yeah. Uh, so this allows you to essentially have like parallel or multi-threaded data availability, and this will probably get you uh, if you do this, it'll get you to two thousand transactions per second. It helps quite a bit. Yes. All right. Well, we got to so, we got to wrap this up. We're already already right. past an hour. Um, I, by no means am I like. Got it all. This is a solution. I definitely want to learn more, and I think there's more to learn. Uh, where do people go to read the research that's been put out and where things are going from now? Yeah, so following me on Twitter is probably the best way, as long as you can tolerate my trolling and crass sense of humor. Some people do not. <laughs> uh, alternatively, you can look me up on Medium. I've written a few posts on uh, optimistic rollups, or most. the best place is probably ETH Research. I've written about half a dozen posts since I created optimistic rollups and then later on improved it. That kind of outline the general plan towards you know making Ethereum you know a high throughput multi-threaded data availability layer. Uh, we'll see if that you know actually gets through the EIP governance process. Uh, and where else to follow me? I guess that's about it. But if you want to keep up with projects, so uh, I'm involved with Fuel Labs, which is again they're building you know production grade optimistic rollups specifically targeting payments. Uh, so you can look up Fuel Labs on either Twitter or Medium. Uh, and I'm also involved in Lazy Ledger, which is a new blockchain that's specifically built for high throughput data availability that can be used for schemes like optimistic rollups uh, and others uh, that will get us to you know tens or hundreds, hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. So you can uh, and Lazy Ledger also has some blog posts on Twitter that you can look up. All right, thanks for thanks for having the show. I really appreciate that. I definitely feel better about my mental model around this and where to go to learn more, which is the goal that I wanted to get from this. So thank you for that. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Corey and Colin. It was great to be here.